Hey, just a note. I'm so excited to announce that Method and Madness is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas. This festival is for you, the listeners, and is designed around your desire to mingle and interact with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. Check out all the details at truecrimepodcastfestival.com, including info on how to get tickets and hotel reservations. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you won't want to wait. I hope to see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of drug abuse, domestic abuse, and animal abuse. Listener discretion is advised. They've been called a modern-day punk Romeo and Juliet, for never was a story of more woe than this of Nancy and her Sid Vicious. This is Method and Madness, Episode 44, Vicious, The Killing of Nancy Spungen. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. Today, police received an ambulance call at the Chelsea Hotel on West 23rd Street. In room 100, Sid Vicious was sitting on the bed near his picture. In the bathroom was the 20-year-old American girl he'd lived with for two years. Nancy Laura Spungen had been stabbed to death. Police say a collapsible hunting knife lay nearby. It was the morning of Thursday, October 12, 1978, New York City, one of those perfect fall days on West 23rd Street. That's what it looked like on the outside, but not in room 100, on the first floor of the Hotel Chelsea. The couple living there were actually fairly quiet, considering who they were. They'd spent most of their days lounging around and watching TV and doing drugs, friends coming in and out. But that morning, the endless party was over as a woman lay dead, a single stab wound to her stomach. Her body slumped underneath the sink of the bathroom. The knife used, a Jaguar K-11 hunting knife, clean, laying on top of a suitcase. Crime scene photos show a bloody handprint on a mattress that sits on the floor, but there's no mention of it in the police report. An arrest is made almost instantly with little investigation. Let's dive in. Punk was supposed to piss off everybody and make people think, said Legs McNeil, a staffer at Punk Magazine in the mid-70s. It was the anti-Pink Floyd, the anti-disco, the anti-Beatles. It was aggressive, unpolished, often minimal, and for many started in a garage. The look of punk was also simple, also made to piss people off. It was the anti-sparkle, the anti-glitter. 
It was jeans, t-shirts, safety pins for accessories. It was Doc Martens. Ask a punk fan which band started at all, and you'll most likely get a different answer. The Ramones, MC5, or was it the Stooges? The Sex Pistols will tell you it was them. Formed in 1972 and signed to EMI in 1976, their website says, quote, The Pistols were inspired by anger and poverty, not art and poetry. The London-based band was managed, or mismanaged according to their site, by Malcolm McLaren, husband to fashion designer Vivian Westwood, who would often design for the band. Frontman John Lydon, who came to be known as Johnny Rotten, joined a few years after the band was formed by Steve Jones and Paul Cook. On bass was Glenn Matlock. They weren't mainstream. In fact, many attendees at their live shows just didn't get it. But those that did, like Billy Idol and Susan of Susie and the Banshees, were there for the ride. The ride to a new brand of stardom. Their first big release was Anarchy in the UK, and the band got a break in December of 76 when Queen had to cancel a scheduled appearance on Bill Grundy's London-based TV show, Today. The Sex Pistols took their place. Who were these guys who were swearing and saying exactly what they meant, exactly what they wanted to say on live TV? The world was paying attention. And a lot of the world hated them and their anti-establishment attitude. When bassist Glenn Matlock left the band in 1977, a fan took his place. That fan was John Simon Ritchie, or John Beverly, better known as Sid Vicious. He could barely play bass, but was pumped about joining a band he was already a massive fan of and ended up inventing the dance of punk the pogo. But alas, and possibly to the dismay of punk fans that may be listening, this is not a deep dive into the Sex Pistols, although there's enough content out there to fill a miniseries. So who was the man known as Sid Vicious, the barely old enough to drink, notorious pot stirrer in the tea leather jacket with the iconic chain and padlock around his neck? To those who knew him, deep down, he was shy, unprepared for the pressure of punk rock stardom. Sid Vicious was born John Simon Ritchie in southeast London on May 10, 1957, to Mother Anne and Father John. His father wasn't a presence in his life, and Sid was raised by his mother in various areas of England. When Anne married Christopher Beverly, she and her son took on the last name— and Christopher passed away a few months later. Anne suffered from drug addiction, heroin mostly, and the story goes that when she'd be traveling with a young Sid, she'd hide her stash in his diaper. It's hard to say if Sid was ever given a chance to have a clean life, and his mom kicked him out of the house when he was 16. But he found his people in London's punk scene, and at one time was a drummer for Susie and the Banshees. Sid was described as someone who would always take things as far as possible, no care in the world about where that would take him. He lived in the present moment and didn't give a thought to outcomes. If Rotten is the voice of punk, then Vicious is the attitude, 
manager Malcolm McLaren would go on to say. He started going by the name Sid Vicious when the realization that there was one too many Johns in the band set in, and so he took his moniker from John Lydon, Johnny Rotten's pet hamster Sid, who was named after Sid Barrett, the co-founder of Pink Floyd. Some say Sid Vicious craved attention, required it. His erratic antics included hitting journalist Nick Kent with a bicycle chain at the 100 Club in London in 1977. But that erratic behavior would take him, and this may be a controversial take, perhaps too far for even the punk scene. After the band lost their contract with EMI following a brawl at Heathrow Airport, Sid blew their second chance when he vomited on the desk of the A&M Records director who had just signed the Sex Pistols. They were dropped six days after being signed. His rebellious nature was adored by those in the scene, but there was a shadow that lingered around Sid. Sometimes that unpredictable nature was unwelcome by even those closest to him. Skip ahead a few seconds if you don't want to hear the next part, which is disturbing for animal lovers. Glenn Matlock's flatmate, Mark Helfond, in an interview, said that he'd witnessed Sid torture and kill a cat by hanging it by a noose, just because. Mark says it was the most disgusting thing he ever saw, and it was the biggest regret he had, not stopping Sid from doing it. Others who knew Sid would defend him say that he was misunderstood, that he was more thoughtful and deliberate than he was given credit for. Those famous images of Sid Vicious, wearing tees with a swastika, that he did that to dilute the meaning of it, and that he wasn't particularly aggressive, but he didn't take any crap from anyone, and that would lead to him getting into physical fights. His path in life would be taken and history made when in London, 1977, Sid met Nancy. Nancy Spungen was born on February 27, 1958, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to parents Deborah and Frank. Her mother believes she was born with some form of brain damage as a result of the umbilical cord being wrapped around her throat. But doctors dismissed the idea. Nancy was unable to come home from the hospital for the first nine days of her life. Once home, she screamed in anguish and nothing seemed to comfort her. As an infant, she didn't want to be held, and as a toddler, the only way her parents could control her was to put her in a room and close the door. But when she got too old for that, she would threaten to harm herself or destruct property, and she would follow through. Her mother said that Nancy controlled the household, that it became easier to let her have her way in a sense, just to keep the peace, to avoid the inevitable tantrums and the havoc Nancy would wreak on her siblings. Professional help was sought. At three and a half, her parents took her for psychiatric help, and after six months, she was discharged. No formal diagnosis or prognosis was ever given, as the medical professionals seemed to be at a loss. It was frustrating and agonizing for Nancy's family. And for the 50s and 60s, Mom Deborah did the best with the tools she had, 
Today, Nancy may have been diagnosed with a sensory processing disorder. Deborah wrote a book in 1996 called And I Don't Want to Live This Life, A Mother's Story of Her Daughter's Murder. In it, she describes Nancy as a child with serious mental illness whose behavior always spiraled out of control, that she ran the household with her outbursts, and that despite many visits to doctors, Nancy was never successfully treated for what was reportedly a diagnosis of schizophrenia. She was expelled from school at age 11 and from there attended a boarding school in Connecticut and graduated at age 16. It seems her parents did everything they could to help her, but didn't know how to. Hell, even the doctors they visited in the 60s and 70s seemed to be at a loss, as they advised Nancy's parents that she'd grow out of it, just love her, give it time. Nancy briefly attended college at the University of Colorado, but dropped out and at age 17 headed to New York City. She'd always been drawn to music. It seemed to be in her soul, and she loved when her dad would play guitar. She'd listen to anything from the Beatles to the soundtrack from the musical Hair. So it was inevitable that she'd end up finding the music scene. Once in New York, she made money as a sex worker and bought drugs for bands, her ticket into the punk scene, which was emerging strong. She was a groupie, which in the mid-70s punk scene meant that she was right in the midst of it all, a major part of the scene, including hanging out at famed club CBGB. And she wanted in to have the rock star boyfriend to be just as prominent a figure, a face, a name, as the frontmen themselves. New York City may as well have been the island of misfit toys, a place for the flawed, the outcast, the rejected, to find their crew. With her curly-dyed beach-blonde hair, smoky eyes, red lip, and punk fashion sense, Nancy had been described by those who knew her as a bad influence. Some would call her nauseating, while others would go on to say she was always nice. As described in the documentary, Who Killed Nancy?, those that were also part of the New York 70s punk scene were saying, stay away from her, she's bad news, which was saying a lot, particularly for a crew that had guys like the Ramones hanging out. Nancy had famously told people she'd never make it to age 21, and unfortunately, she was right. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com 
slash method and madness. That's betterhelp.com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. In the spring of 1977, Nancy followed the band, The Heartbreakers, from New York City to London, reportedly because she was obsessed with drummer Jerry Nolan. But soon her attention was drawn to the Sex Pistols, and Nancy and Sid met in London in 1977 and seemed to get each other. Whereas other guys in the scene were trying their best to avoid her, Sid took to Nancy right away, and they became a couple. Love at first sight. They were inseparable. She accompanied the Sex Pistols on tour as they raised hell in the UK following their release of the meant-to-shock single, God Save the Queen. And throughout their time together, Sid and Nancy brought out the best and the worst in each other. Sid had otherwise been shy around women and was rumored to be a virgin at the time he met Nancy. He was fiercely protective of her, and she was merely tolerated by others because of people's loyalty to Sid. What struck me most about Nancy Spungen was how people who knew her or spoke of her, it was like she was poisonous. And maybe in the 70s, that was how she was understood. But she was troubled, suffering from illnesses that were undiagnosed and so young. But by all accounts, Sid really did love her, and she loved him back. Their codependent, drug-fueled relationship would become legendary in its destructiveness. One of the most commonly talked about moments in their relationship was the time that the pair were at a club and a rival groupie started hanging on Sid. Nancy instructed him to push her down the stairs, and without thinking twice, he did just that. But the Pistols really didn't want Nancy around, and she's often compared to Yoko in that sense. Some say she introduced Sid to heroin, and others say he was addicted before he even met her. It's hard to say, but what we do know is that Sid's own mother was a heroin addict, so the notion that he was corrupted by Nancy seems a little suspect. Those in Sid's circle love to make Nancy the scapegoat. There was a lot of infighting among the band members, and their eventual breakup came after what's been called a disastrous U.S. tour. Their last show was at San Francisco's Winterland Ballroom in January of 78. Sid, 21 years old, and Nancy, 20, moved to New York City in August of 1978. They took up residency at the Hotel Chelsea, which is located in the neighborhood of Chelsea and is a designated landmark and registered historic place. Built around 1885, it's been the home to many notable artists, fashion designers, musicians, writers, and people in the TV and film industry. If those walls could talk. Imagine the stories of residents like Tom Waits, Alice Cooper, Jimi Hendrix, Mark Twain, Leonard Cohen, Stanley Kubrick, and Mitch Hedberg. Countless others. With the dissolution of the Sex Pistols, Sid was trying out a solo career with Nancy acting as his manager and rebranding him to an extent. During this time, there are reports that Sid was physically abusive toward Nancy, as the two shared an addiction to heroin. October 1978, New York City. Jimmy Carter was president. The song Kiss You All Over by Exile was number one on the U.S. charts, 
But back in Sid's homeland, people were doing the hand jive to Olivia and John's summer nights. On the TV, you could find the Jeffersons or Game 2 of the World Series. And horror fans were just days away from being introduced to Michael Myers for the first time. And that night, Wednesday, October 11th, Sid and Nancy were doing the usual in their room, partying with friends stopping in from time to time. Witnesses later recalled how they saw Sid taking a large dose of the barbiturate Tuanol, up to 30 tablets. Now discontinued, Tuanol's intended use was as a sleep aid, a sedative, but was eventually taken off the market when it became widely abused as a recreational drug. Sid and Nancy were seen by several other tenants that night, including their friend Neon Leon, who lived down the hall. He recalled getting a call from Nancy at 4 a.m. saying that she and Sid were high on two and all. According to several sources, including the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and New York Magazine, at around 2.30 a.m., Nancy asked Sid's bodyguard, an aspiring actor who went by the stage name Rocket's Red Glare, for some delighted an opioid and substitute for heroin. He was unable to acquire any, but did show up to room 100. He said later that he saw Nancy with a stack of cash and large bills. She had said she had $1,400 to spend on drugs. Other residents said at different points throughout the night and pre-dawn hours, there was a lot of commotion and knocking on doors. Complaints to the front desk that a man was in hallways banging on the doors to which the night bellhop responded, finding Sid wandering the hallways out of it. He confronted him and a fight ensued, leaving Sid with a bloody mouth. And yet another resident said that Sid showed up at her door around 5.30 a.m., covered in blood. Sometime between 7 and 7.30 a.m., residents heard what they described as female moans. After 10 a.m., Sid woke up and he thought he'd peed. The bed was wet, but it was wet with blood. He found Nancy wearing only a bra and underwear in the bathroom with a stab wound to her stomach, and he left the Chelsea, saying she was still breathing at the time, and he went down to Lafayette Street to get methadone from the clinic. When he returned to the hotel room, he said she was unresponsive and now covered in blood. He tried to clean her up, but there was too much blood, and he washed off the knife that was on the bed. He called down to the front desk twice, telling them that his girlfriend was hurt badly and help arrived a short time later. Sid told the first responding officers that he didn't know what happened to Nancy and that he didn't stab her. He'd found her at 10.30 a.m. slumped on the tile floor of the bathroom. Later, he told detectives that he and Nancy had taken a large number of drugs the night before and then went to bed, that he'd fallen asleep around 1 a.m. A neighbor walking past the scene stopped by and saw Nancy's body in the bathroom and Sid surrounded by officers. They thought Sid was weeping as he kept saying, baby, baby, baby followed by either she fell on the knife or she must have fallen on the knife. Detective Gerald Thomas of the NYPD 
arrived around that time, and Sid was sitting on the floor, about 20 feet from room 100, talking to other officers. The detective read Sid his rights and asked if he could speak to him without a lawyer present. Sid said yes. He told Detective Thomas that Nancy must have rolled over onto the knife or fell on it and said how they'd taken two and all the night before, swallowed it. When pressed on whether or not they'd argued the night before, Sid initially said no, but then said yes. Understandably, the detective was incredulous that Sid had woken up at 10 a.m., found his girlfriend with a stab wound in her stomach, and walked out, walked to the methadone clinic, only to return and clean the knife and attempt to clean Nancy. Sid was questioned on how, if the stabbing happened in the bed where all the blood was found, how Nancy ended up in the bathroom, to which Sid responded, she must have dragged herself in there. After more questioning and going back and forth, Sid said he stabbed her, that he killed Nancy because he was, quote, a dirty dog, that she treated him like shit and that he wanted to die a worse death than she had. He was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. Most of the questions he was asked, he responded with he didn't remember, like why he cleaned the knife off. Sid was later released on $50,000 bail. The Forensics Crime Unit collected items from Room 100, including photos, drug paraphernalia, a few knives, clothes, and a small amount of cash, as well as what Sid was wearing and some of his jewelry. Not recovered was the large sum of cash that Nancy had shown to Rocket's red glare. The autopsy concluded that Nancy had died from internal and external hemorrhaging, resulting from a one-inch-wide stab wound to her lower abdomen. There was bruising found on her body, including two bruises on her face, which she told friend Neon Leon that Sid had given her. It was rumored that he'd hit her with his guitar. Like so many other details in this case, and I suspect it's because of the lack of thoroughness in the investigation, the details are fuzzy when it comes to Nancy's time of death and for how long she was bleeding before succumbing to her injuries. It took her a while to bleed out, and if that's true, why didn't she call for help or attempt to leave the room to get help? Had the drugs taken over in such a way that she wasn't even aware of the severity of her injury? Sid's friends had their opinions, and they vary. Malcolm McLaren, Sid's manager, said it was hard to believe he'd killed Nancy, that the two had planned on getting married soon. Photographer Joe Stevens said that Sid confessed to him that he did it. Witnesses interviewed in the documentary Who Killed Nancy said that prior to the murder, they saw Sid with a long knife, lightly sticking Nancy with it. And some said it didn't matter how much Sid loved Nancy. Anything was off the table when heroin was involved. Alan Jones, friend to both Sid and Nancy, said he knows Sid didn't and would never do it. And others that knew them thought it was very possible that Nancy did it herself as part of a death pact that the two had vowed to each other. Witnesses had seen her cutting herself from time to time, what's known now as self-harm. 
While out on bail, Sid wasn't going to lay low and behave. At the Hurrah nightclub in NYC, he started hitting on a roadie for the band Scoffish. The roadie's boyfriend, Todd, confronted Sid, who responded by smashing a beer bottle in Todd's face. That was Todd Smith, the brother of singer Patti Smith. The incident put Sid back in jail, and he spent two months at Rikers Island. But Sid's lawyer posted his bail. Rumor has it that Mick Jagger contributed to the fundraising. And he was released to his mother and to his new girlfriend, Michelle Robinson. Sid was understandably depressed during this time. Here's an excerpt from a letter he wrote to Nancy's mom during those dark days. Her pain was just too much to bear, because you see, I felt Nancy's pain as though it were my own. Worse even, I love her with such passion. Every day is agony without her. I know now it is possible to die from a broken heart, because when you love someone as much as we love each other, they become fundamental to your existence. So I will die soon, even if I don't kill myself. I guess you could say that I'm pining for her. I could live without food or water longer than I'm going to survive without Nancy. She was too beautiful for this world. Where would you like to be? Under the ground. Sid attempted suicide and spent some time detoxing at Bellevue. And then, on February 1st, 1979, while awaiting trial and at a party, a gathering of about eight people at an apartment in Greenwich Village, friends say Sid was in a good mood, joking and playing air guitar. He was even looking forward to clearing his name and recording a new album. But he'd never get the chance to do either. At midnight, he shot up heroin and had a strong reaction to it. Forty-five minutes later, he was coming out of it, and then he laid down at 2 a.m. to go to sleep, and he passed out. His concerned friends revived him, and later, they said he seemed okay. Because he had been detoxified from being in jail, and then took the same dose he'd previously been used to, what he took that night was lethal— and Sid died of an overdose at the age of 21, found by his mother that morning, naked in his bed. His death certificate listed his cause of death as acute intravenous narcotism. Sex Pistols photographer Peter Gravel said, not only did Sid's mother Anne buy him the fatal dose of heroin, she also administered it. But few truly know what happened that night, and Johnny Rotten would go on to have a lot of animosity toward Anne Beverly. Anne found a paper in one of her son's pockets that read like a suicide note. It said, in part, We had a death pact. I have to keep up my half of this bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. The case, the death of Nancy, was then closed. No further investigation, no trial, for the police, there was never any other suspect. Sid did it. He was a junkie. Case closed. The case may be officially closed, but there's never truly been closure on what happened to Nancy Spungen. 
Here's what we do know about the scene and the evidence collected from Hotel Chelsea. Sid had taken a lot of the drug Tuanol, possibly 30 tablets, which could have rendered him unconscious. However, he was an addict, and 30 tablets for an addict isn't the same as 30 tablets for a non-addict. And the effects of Tuanol are known to make a person go in and out of consciousness. There were six fingerprints found in room 100, but no known reports that police had interviewed any of those people. The murder weapon was wiped clean, and several other knives owned by Sid were found with his belongings. A large sum of cash was missing. Now, there's an obvious injustice here, and that's that Nancy's death was never thoroughly investigated. Theories vary depending on who you listen to. Nancy's mother believes that she wanted to die. After all, she'd been saying her whole life that she wouldn't make it to 21, that she essentially goaded Sid into stabbing her that night, which he did in a drugged haze. Before she died in 1996, Sid's mother wanted his name cleared, and that was what Alan G. Parker set out to do with his documentary, Who Killed Nancy?, released in 2009. Throughout the film, we see friends, witnesses, former bandmates describing Sid's and Nancy's relationship and analyzing that final fateful night before she was found dead on the bathroom floor, hearing from people who knew the couple best. If you believe Sid killed Nancy, either by accident or while so high on drugs, he didn't realize later on that he'd done it, well, you're not alone. The two had brought out the worst in each other and had been volatile and violent toward each other. Nancy is found dead in the room they're sharing and nobody else is there. Sid kind of denies it, he kind of confesses, but he was out of his mind on drugs that night, and whether he was capable of stabbing someone with a knife is up for debate. And would he remember anything about that night if he did? Hardcore fans and friends say there's no way Sid did it, but none of it seems to be backed by evidence, just that he loved Nancy too much to have done it. Another theory is that a mysterious man named Michael killed Nancy, and then he robbed Sid and Nancy of that wad of cash they had in their room. Witnesses said they saw him with a lot of cash and one of Nancy's hair ties wrapped around it. And residents of the hotel recalled seeing him around the halls. There was even a sketch drawing made of what he looked like. However, what's so bizarre is that apparently this Michael person disappeared shortly after Nancy's death and has never been interviewed by police. How hard would it be to track down who he was? I suppose the police had to care enough to find out. And then there's Rocket's Red Glare, the dealer and aspiring actor that provided Sid with the drugs that night and had definitely been in their room. There are even people in his inner circle that say he'd confessed to it. His real name was Michael Mora, and he died in 2001. And finally, there's the theory that Nancy's stab wound was self-inflicted, that after suffering a lifetime of mental illness and years of drug abuse, she had made a choice that night. Whether she understood at the time, the gravity of that choice we'll never know. In 1986, Alex Cox wrote and directed the feature film Sid and Nancy, which received mixed reviews from audiences. 
Those that wanted an intro into the world of the Sex Pistols enjoyed the -the over-the-top performances by Gary Oldman and Chloe Webb. Steve Jones, the Pistols' guitarist, said later on The Tonight Show that the most accurate part of the film was the way it portrayed drug abuse. One interesting bit of trivia, Courtney Love had auditioned for the role of Nancy, but was given a smaller role instead. Nancy Spungen is buried at King David Memorial Park in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, and while it's been nearly 44 years, my heart goes out to her and to her family that never received answers and had to endure years of listening to jokes at Nancy's expense. While technically an adult, she was battling illnesses and demons that she couldn't get rid of. And while there were a few people out there that were on her side, I feel for the young girl who ultimately wanted to find her place in the world. Sid Vicious was cremated and had requested that his ashes be spread on Nancy's grave. Some sources say they were, while Johnny Rotten says that Sid's mother attempted to bring Sid's urn back to England and ended up dumping his ashes in an air conditioning vent at Heathrow. Nancy's mother, Deborah Spungen, led the Philadelphia chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast. If you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.